Hello, and welcome to the Trump Scorecard. I'm your host, Jesse Burney, and I'd like to start this week by talking about an interesting story in The Hill on Wednesday that talked about four pretty big policy shifts that Trump made in a single day. I link to this story and all the stories we talk about in the podcast on the website. That's thetrumpscorecard.org. And I want to go through all four of these policy changes quickly. First, uh, he campaigned on a promise to label China a currency manipulator, but he now says China is not manipulating its currency and, and hasn't been for some time, and experts agree with him on this. Second, Trump said he would consider renominating Janet Yellen as Fed chair after he blasted her during the campaign, uh, said she made decisions based entirely on politics. Third, changed his mind and decided to support the Export-Import Bank, which crazy right-wingers believe is some sort of government conspiracy. It also operates uh, at a profit, by the way. And last, he announced that NATO is no longer obsolete because now that he's president, he thinks he magically fixed it. So these were were pretty big policy shifts, and they all came on the same day. And, And you'll notice something funny about them. They're all shifts in the right direction. You know, you can argue both sides of of any of these issues, but if nothing else, his new stances seem to be more reality-based. So, is this it? Has the fabled pivot arrived? Are we finally seeing a new, more presidential Donald J. Trump? No, of course not. This is exactly what Donald Trump has always done. He says what he believes his audience wants to hear, He repeats the last thing that someone said to him. He changes his mind on a dime. You know, none of these policy changes are meaningful the moment someone convinces him to reverse course. Right now, there's this this click of less insane than Steve Bannon people, and that's saying very, very little, uh, kind of ascendant in the Trump White House. Uh, In fact, actually, Trump threw Steve Bannon under the bus in a major way in an interview with the New York Post this week, practically pretended not to know him. But but this clique, uh, folks, includes people like Jared Kushner, Gary Cohn, and they're, they're probably behind some, if not all, of these shifts. And who knows, maybe they'll stick. Or maybe the winds will change and he'll reverse course on every single one of them. You don't know. You never know. It's not like these are carefully thought out and considered changes. Donald Trump has never carefully thought out anything in his life. That's what makes him so goddamn terrifying. He is our president, and he is a toddler. I have two children, and let me tell you something. Toddlers are awful. And while he may have shifted the right way on a few minor issues, Donald J. Trump and the people who work for him still did a whole lot of awful stuff in the 12th week of his presidency. I'm going to cover as much of it as I can in the next half hour, just like I do every week. Why do I do it? Because this is not normal. Obviously, there is nothing more terrifying about having a toddler president than knowing he is in complete control over the most powerful military on Earth, including a nuclear arsenal large enough to destroy the entire planet and a few others to boot if we if we feel like it. Just today, uh, Thursday as I record this, not one, not two, but three stories broke that should scare the pants off you. First, the U.S.-led coalition in Syria conducted an airstrike that killed 18 Syrian fighters, fighters who were aligned with the U.S.-led coalition. This is the third time this has happened this month, killing either allies or civilians. 
And, and yes, full disclaimer, this absolutely happened under President Obama. But then we had a president who cared about these deaths. I honestly don't think President Trump does care about allies or civilians being killed. Maybe I'm wrong. I can't see inside his heart. I'm only basing it on every single thing he's ever said or ever done. And, and speaking of things that probably killed a bunch more people than intended, today the U.S. military dropped the largest non-nuclear bomb in our arsenal on what was believed to be fortified ISIS, ISIS positions in Afghanistan. It was meant to cave in tunnels ISIS fighters had, had dug. And, and here's the genuinely terrifying thing about this. The news broke hours ago, and, and as I record this, we have no idea whether or not Trump actually ordered the bombing. Uh, you may remember, for longtime listeners, all the way back in week six, that is half of Trump's presidency ago, I covered the story of Trump giving unprecedented autonomy to military commanders in the field. So one of them may have just set off the biggest bomb we have that isn't a nuke without the president's permission. We just don't know, and that's terrifying too. What we do know is that after last week's airstrikes on an empty airfield in Syria, Trump was showered with praise from some corners of the media. Fareed Zachariah even said it was the moment Trump became president, which is just about the stupidest thing I've ever heard. But that taught Trump a really dangerous lesson. Bombing equals praise from the media. And as much as he criticizes the media, Trump is desperate for its approval. Remember, this is the guy who watches TV news all day. It's been 12 weeks. 12 weeks and the military has already resorted to using the biggest bomb it has that isn't a nuke. And I'll, I'll be clear about this. This is orders of magnitude less powerful than a nuclear weapon. But it is still a very, very, very big bomb. And yeah, I'm worried that in the next 196 weeks of Trump's presidency, he might decide to go for something bigger. Speaking of which, I saved the most terrifying thing for last. This is from NBC News from today, uh, April 13th. The U.S. is prepared to launch a preemptive strike with conventional weapons against North Korea should officials become convinced that North Korea is about to follow through with a nuclear weapons test, multiple senior U.S. intelligence officials told NBC News. North Korea has warned that a, quote, big event is near, and U.S. officials say signs point to a nuclear test that could come as early as this weekend. A preemptive attack against North Korea. That idea should terrify you. North Korea is run by the third in a line of horrible despotic dictators. I would love nothing more than to see Kim Jong-un toppled and democracy brought to North Korea. But that country is armed with nuclear weapons. It has the fourth largest military in the world, and it will not hesitate to attack Seoul or Tokyo or any other target it can reach. We are talking about millions of lives in the balance. You want to know what leads Trump to using nuclear weapons? A conventional attack on North Korea, followed by a threat from Pyongyang to use its own nukes. That's when Trump uses a nuclear weapon. Look, I don't know if that's going to happen. I really, really hope it doesn't. But if you think that's impossible, I used to think it was impossible that Donald Trump could ever become president of the United States. I've learned not to rule anything out. We just can't go a week without talking about Russia, can we? But there were some really big revelations this week. 
First, we learned that Trump campaign foreign policy advisor Carter Page was the subject of a FISA warrant because the FBI believed there was probable cause Page was acting as an agent of a foreign power. Now, Page hasn't been charged with a crime yet, but we know the investigation into the Trump, the Trump campaign's ties to Russia are ongoing. We also learned more about former campaign chairman Paul Manafort, and, and you might remember he left the campaign because of a revelation of this secret ledger from a, a pro-Kremlin political party in Ukraine. Manafort had done work for the party, but, but this ledger documented millions in, in off-the-books payments to him. And he always denied that, that the ledger was genuine and the payments had happened. But the Associated Press this week confirmed that Manafort received multiple payments listed in the ledger, the exact amounts, the exact times. And the, and the companies that he received the payments from, they weren't registered in Ukraine, they were registered in Belize. That's kind of shady. And one Ukrainian lawmaker wants Manafort investigated for possible money laundering. You know, if these investigations ever do result in arrests, I, ha I have the feeling Manafort will be right at the front of, of the frog march. Lastly, there was a really interesting story in The Guardian this week. Uh, again, uh, links to all these stories are on the website. That's thetrumpscorecard.org. And The Guardian story laid out the timeline for how the FBI and intelligence agencies began this investigation uh, of tr the Trump campaign's ties to Russia. It was Britain's Signal Intelligence Service, it's their version of the, the NSA, uh, which first picked up the connection when listening in to suspected Russian agents back in 2015. And then other allies started finding similar evidence. Uh, Germany, Estonia, Poland, Australia, possibly France and the Netherlands, they were all seeing Russian operatives talking to Trump people, and they all fed that intelligence to U.S. officials. That's how the investigation got started. That many allies saw links between Russian operatives and Trump associates. We still don't know the extent of what they said. We don't know who was involved, although there seems to be a lot of fingers pointing at Carter Page. We don't know what they were doing, what they were promised or promised in return. But man, that is a lot of intelligence agencies telling the United States that one of our presidential candidates has multiple ties to Russian intelligence. Maybe we should get an independent investigation of this. You think? Guys, I'm not sure we give Jeff Sessions enough credit. He may very well be the most morally corrupt person in the entire Trump administration. He is a horrible, horrible human being, and we shouldn't forget that. Ever. Two examples this week. Uh, the first is from the Washington Post on April 10th. Attorney General Jeff Sessions will end a Justice Department partnership with independent scientists to raise forensic science standards and has suspended an expanded review of FBI testimony across several techniques that have come under question, saying a new strategy will be set by an in-house team of law enforcement advisors. Because why would we want law enforcement to be using the best science to catch and convict criminals? Why would we want to make sure the evidence we're using says what we think it says? Sessions, you'll remember, is a former prosecutor himself. 
But he doesn't care about justice. This is the guy running the Justice Department. What he cares about are convictions, whether they're right or not. And he certainly doesn't care even a tiny bit about science. The other thing Jeff Sessions doesn't care about? Brown people. He went to the border this week to announce what he called, quote, a new era in immigration enforcement, the Trump era. If that sounds awful, it's because obviously it's awful. He's ordering federal prosecutors to charge people for harboring undocumented immigrants, which one prosecutor told the Daily Beast is, and I quote, fucking horrifying. That, that prosecutor went on. The things they want us to do are so horrifying. They want to do harboring cases of three or more people. So if you're illegal and you bring your family over, then you're harboring your kid and your wife, and you can go to jail. So they're not just going to deport these people. They're going to send them to jail for the crime of wanting to be with their families. Sessions is gleeful about this policy. It is what he has always wanted, and now he is in the position to put it into effect. Never forget, this is the guy whom Coretta Scott King warned us about all the way back in 1986. Do you really think he's changed? Let's do some quick hits. Quick hits. Uh, Trump's press secretary, Sean Spicer, said something so stupid this week. You know, you had a, you know, someone as despicable as Hitler who didn't even sink to the, to the, to using chemical weapons. And he had to, like, clarify it and retract it and apologize seven different times. But what he said isn't what infuriated me the most. What really infuriated me, you know what? I wrote a whole column on this for Cosmo. So if you want to know what infuriated me, you'll have to go read it. Uh, there is a link, as always, on the website, thetrumpscorecard.org. So go check that out. Quick hits. So listen, if the Trump Environmental Protection Agency makes an announcement, there's a good chance the environment is about to be less protected. Uh, like this great example from Washington Post on April 13th. The Trump administration has hit the pause button on an Obama-era regulation aimed at limiting the dumping of toxic metals, such as arsenic and mercury, by the nation's power plants into public waterways. Okay, first of all, why was this an Obama-era regulation? Why did it take us so long to limit dumping toxic metals into our waterways? And why isn't it just banned outright? Anyway, I hope you like arsenic and mercury, because they're going to be in the glass of water you're drinking as you listen to my voice. Or maybe you're just imagining my voice, because the mercury has made your brain go all kablooey. Quick hits! Speaking of the EPA, uh, Christina Wilkie at the Huffington Post has a really strange story you should, you should check out. Uh, apparently, a Washington state senator who was an early supporter of Trump was at the, the EPA as part of his early landing team, and the guy was supposed to end up with a, a job there. Only everyone at the EPA hated him because he was some kind of weird jerk. So instead, Trump secretly appointed him to run the draft, you know, the, the one Trump dodged. And this guy is the first one in history to run the draft with zero military experience. He has no qualifications. They basically looked for a place to dump him. It's just a political patronage job. 
you should check out the story. It's it's really weird. You you know where to find it. Quick hits. Hey, Rex Tillerson asked why U.S. taxpayers should care about the Ukraine, which is horrible. Uh, what Tillerson said, not the Ukraine. I've been to the Ukraine. It's it's actually quite nice. Uh, for the record, Mr. Secretary of State, uh, the Ukraine is a country with millions of people in it, and your job is to like care about stuff like countries with people in them. Quick hits. Finally, this week, Trump threatened to hold Americans' health care hostage. I'm I'm not making that up. He told the Wall Street Journal he would withhold Obamacare subsidies to force Democrats to the negotiating table. And and I'd just like to take a a brief moment to examine the dynamics of that threat. Usually in in movies and TV shows, if there's a guy who has a knife held to the throat of an innocent bystander, it's pretty reliable that that guy is the bad guy in in the movie. And, And the one who has to negotiate with him, usually that's the good guy. I think that metaphor applies to this situation pretty well. And and personally, I'm glad I'm not on the side of the guy holding the knife to America's throat. Usually I like to do an interview about a depressing subject and then end on a fun note. But this week, you know what, I'm going to do both of them at once. Uh, Trump this week described his conversation with the president of China uh, about his missile strike against the Syrian airbase. I was sitting at the table. We had finished dinner. We're now having dessert. And we had the most beautiful piece of chocolate cake that you've ever seen. The most beautiful piece of chocolate cake that you've ever seen. That's the detail he needs to get in there. That Mar-a-Lago, which is where he hosts world leaders, has great chocolate cake. Y'all, let's talk for a little bit about the food at Mar-a-Lago. Better yet, let's let a real chef talk about the food at Mar-a-Lago. You've seen the menu. I mean, it's like, it looks like a country club menu from like 1994 through 1996, you know. Um, it, it's kind of like embarrassingly uh, boring looking food, um, you know, and it's not, it seems like it's the standard, uh, you know, you go to a wedding and they're like, you want salmon, chicken or beef. So um, the food looks pretty outdated there. That's right. This week, I'm going to be a coastal elitist food snob, and I don't care at all because Mar-a-Lago is gross. That's why I talked to my friend Richie Nakano. He's an amazing chef from San Francisco who consults for new pop-up restaurants at IDK Concepts. And he had some thoughts about that chocolate cake. I mean, it's not it's not inspiring-looking food, and then you see the picture of the chocolate cake that Trump was so excited about. And, I mean... I was trying to figure out how the cake ended up being cut like that. Cause for people who haven't seen the picture, it's cut into a slice, but then there's like another little piece taken out right at the tip. And um, all I could think was that maybe th- that someone cutting that didn't get their angles right. And so probably there's probably one really big half of the cake and then a really small half of the cake. I posted the picture Richie is talking about on the website. And seriously, that is a crappy looking piece of cake. You know why Trump loves it so much? Because there's a little white chocolate diamond on the top with his name in gold. That's what makes it 
the most beautiful piece of chocolate cake he's ever seen. And I know what you're thinking. Jesse, why are you talking about cake? A, because I love talking about cake. And B, because that's not what the story is really about. It's really about how disgusting Mar-a-Lago is. The improper cooling would be the most dangerous thing. Improper cooling? What? Oh, Richie must be talking about the Miami Herald article detailing multiple health code violations racked up by the kitchen at Mar-a-Lago, including some chicken stored at about 50 degrees. You know, because there's this thing called the temperature danger zone, and uh, it's from, you know, 39 degrees up to, you know, 165 degrees or so. And... um, Richie sent me a message after our interview. He wanted to correct something. He meant uh, the upper levels at about 140 degrees, not 165. Anytime the food passes through that zone, if it stays in that zone for a long enough period of time, uh, foodborne uh, bacteria grows exponentially. And so people can get really, really, really sick from that. And it's something you see in a lot of places where there just isn't a lot of care being taken in the kitchen. Something else that I noticed in the report was that the walk-in had rusty racks in it and what i what i was wondering about is if the florida weather contributes to there being a lot of condensation on the compressors then the compressors for the refrigeration get dusty and don't work as well Um, or if you know there's a lot of in and out out of their walk-in refrigerator and that's kind of causing uh the temperatures to rise and things like that or if just the place is just kind of old and no one cares about it, and that's contributing to things becoming rusty or refrigeration not working properly. But, um, you know, if you're managing a kitchen like that, especially a kitchen that's hosting foreign dignitaries and people that pay $200,000 a year, you would think that you would take some care in going around and making sure that the refrigeration's working, that the food's being stored properly. But um, I think it really speaks to. Uh, an overall culture of not not caring. I know that may be a little heavy-handed with the metaphor, but it does seem almost too perfect that Donald Trump treats the kitchen at his super-exclusive private club the way he's treating the country. Come to think of it, I, I wonder how much arsenic and mercury is in the tap water at Mar-a-Lago. And like Richie said, this is the place he brings foreign dignitaries and serves them really boring, shitty food. Because he did, he did steak and, and mashed potatoes, right? Um, and then I think the other thing was he had, he had fish with potatoes. So everything had potatoes with it. And it's sort of like something you would expect out of a country club because uh, that can be a place where a lot of culinary careers go to die. But, you know, it's not to say that there aren't country clubs out there that serve probably world-class food and have a really great chef in there that really cares and tries to put out the best product. I just don't think that Mar-a-Lago is that place. You know, I mean, there's a lot of different ways you can go about it. I, you know, I think that it would be nice to do a more vegetable-forward menu, um, things like that. Uh, and then try to play into some more, like, international flavors would be a nice thing to do. But going just the strict meat and potatoes and or fish and potatoes seems just like a, a, a very, like, rote, boring thing to do. Um, you know, I mean, like, if I was personally cooking for the president of China, um, you know, it would be nice to take the cuisine of, uh, you know, region of China and then also some American ingredients and kind of put those two things together, try to, you know, show the respect and interest in their culture. But 
uh, you know, I don't think that's going to be happening in any of these state dinners anytime soon. And there is a, a weird issue of respect here, isn't there? He, he takes foreign leaders to his weird club where he shows off to his sycophantic members, where the food is bland and thoughtless and, and apparently could possibly poison them. Instead, he could be receiving them at the official residence of the president with one of the best chefs in the world. The White House chef gig is like a pretty, like, even in the culinary world of, like, you know, famous New York chefs, L.A. chefs, celebrity chefs, whatever. I mean, like, that's a pretty, like, highly regarded position. It's like a cool thing to get to do, you know. It seems like it would be really depressing to go from cooking with fresh vegetables from Michelle Obama's garden and, you know, like trying to do like healthy and interesting stuff to getting this like meat and potatoes president. Like, it seems like it'd be a real soul crushing thing, you know? See, you thought your soul was crushed by Donald Trump, but at least you don't have to cook for the guy who likes well done steaks with ketchup. I know, I know. This this was an incredibly snobby segment and it's the reason Trump won and blah, blah, blah. But I love food. And Trump's food tastes are as disgusting as the kitchen at his gaudy, cheap club. It's part of who Trump is. And besides, this is my podcast. I'll talk about whatever I damn well please, so stop criticizing me. You're not my real dad anyway, Steve. And that, folks, is it for another bizarre week with Donald J. Trump somehow still the President of the United States because you refuse to wake up from the nightmare you've been having since November. I want to thank Richie Nakano for indulging my food snobbery. Remember to check out the website, thetrumpscorecard.org, for links to all the stories in this episode. Write me an email with tips and stories you want me to cover at thetrumpscorecard at gmail.com. Hit me up on Twitter at Jesse Burney. Like the podcast on Facebook at facebook.com slash thetrumpscorecard. And please rate the podcast on iTunes and write a review. It makes a huge difference. It, it makes me wonder uh, what, what low, low quality of fish they're using there. The Trump Scorecard is written, hosted, edited, and produced by me, Jesse Burney. Our music is from bensound.com. I'll be back next week. And remember, this is not normal. Normal.